Well, turn with me, please, to this passage in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verses 18 to to 30. And let's pray. Father, it is our prayer that through this uh, part of the Word of God, your Word, part of the Gospel, that we would come to know more of Jesus Christ and his surpassing worth. Uh, It is in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, A month ago, a month ago, the columnist uh, Libby Purvis, uh, she wrote a piece in the Times. Those of you maybe near the front can see the headline. It says, Moral Superiority is the Curse of Our Times. Moral Superiority is the Curse of Our Times. And underneath the main headline, there's the subheadline from David Cameron to Prince Harry. Those asserting their own virtue should recognize that sin exists at every level. Those asserting their own virtue should recognize that sin exists at every level. And in the article, Libby Purvis goes on to refer to the abuse and exploitation of refugees by UN personnel and charity workers. Uh, Sarah Champion, who's a Labour MP, she's also the chairwoman of the International Development Select Committee in Parliament, says that a blind eye is turned because aid workers, charity workers, NGOs, are assumed to be good people and, I quote, above reprimand. And then Libby Purvis in this article makes this comment. She says, the awful thing is that it's easy to see how this blindness occurs The blazing goodness of your charity or your cause blots out the possibility that you're also doing bad things. The blazing goodness of your charity or your cause blots out the possibility that you're also doing bad things. Moral superiority is the curse of our times. But it's been there in every time, hasn't it? In every age. Uh, It just takes on different shapes and different forms depending on the culture And the times that we live in. And it's always been there inside the church, sadly, too often, as well as outside it. And you will find it on every level of society. You will find it from within Her Majesty's family to those detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. Um, For example, within Her Majesty's family, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, they have this foundation called the Archiewell Foundation. I think that's how you pronounce it. And its motto is that we, the aim of the Archiewell Foundation is to make the world better one act of compassion at a time. And apparently, Harry and Meghan see no contradiction between that, an act of compassion at a time, making the world a better place. They don't see any contradiction between that and attacking their own family very publicly before an audience of millions, if not billions. Doing so, I assume, from a position of moral superiority. What about those detained at Her Majesty's pleasure? Well, some years ago, I was in Barlini Prison. (laughs) It was a short sentence, just a five-day. Part of a group, a music group that went into Barlini, which is a maximum security prison in Glasgow. And there was a moral superiority operating there too. Because the, robber, the robbers consider themselves better than the armed robbers. 
The armed robbers were not as bad as the murderers. The murderers were not as bad as those who tortured their victims before they killed them. And they were all morally superior to the, to the child abusers. And such is the strength of feeling against child abusers in prison that they have to be protected. They are in a special category. They have to be protected against attacks from their fellow prisoners who consider themselves morally superior to them and therefore consider themselves morally justified in beating them up. So you see, even in prison, even in the mind of a murderer, the blazing goodness of your cause blots out the possibility that you are doing bad things, even with beating someone up. Now, the rich young ruler, and we know from Matthew's gospel that he was a young man, the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18 would be horrified to be compared with a murderer in Barlini prison. Just as many today who are morally respectable would also be horrified. Because for the rich ruler, the last thing on his mind is that he has any problem with morality. Yet Jesus is about to show him that his morality is the greatest problem he has. For it has blinded him to his idolatry. You might want to discuss or argue, is the idolatry not his greatest problem? But I'm arguing here that his morality is his greatest problem. Because it has blinded him to his idolatry. And therefore it has blinded him to his sin and therefore blinded him to his need of Jesus, the only one who has been given authority on earth to forgive us our sins. The only one who can give us eternal life, which is what this man says he wants. Look at verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why did the ruler ask Jesus that question? Was there some nagging doubt that despite all his good behavior, he hadn't done enough to be sure of life in the kingdom of God? For that is the problem with works-based righteousness, isn't it? You never know if you have done enough. And that's what a Muslim woman said to me years ago down in Glasgow when we were doing Christianity Explorer. She said, the problem with Islam is that we try to please Allah, but we never know if we have done enough. That's a problem with works-based righteousness. But Jesus' response, look at Jesus' response in verse 19. It's not to home in on the issue of eternal life. We might have said, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But Jesus homes in on the issue of what the man calls him. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Jesus is questioning the questioner. Why do you call me good? What do you mean by good? No one is good but God alone. And there's a lesson for us here, isn't there? To try and get a handle on the assumptions and the presumptions that people have that lie behind people's questions, especially if we're talking with an unbeliever. It's not just so that we know where they're coming from, but so that they can see where they're coming from. Because they don't always recognize the presuppositions that lie behind their questions. And that's important whether people ask a question about God. Well, tell me, what kind of God do you have in mind? What is, the, what is this God that you don't believe in? 
It's important whether the question is about God, whether it's about suffering or evil or justice or, yes, what is good. Who determines what is good? What does it mean to call someone good? Why do you call me good? Are you really putting me on the same level as God? Or are you just flattering me? We need to beware the flatterer, don't we? It's quite a number of Proverbs in the book of Proverbs that tell you to be wary of the flatterer. The problem with the flatterer is that they work to pursue and promote their own agenda, not yours. They might seem as if they're bigging you up, but actually they're working to themselves, as it were. Mind you, even when we know that, it's hard not to resist it, isn't it? Uh, when I was in Kenya for a few months working as, as a doctor at the time, I gave some talks, some lectures to the nurses in the nursing college on intensive care. And that's not because I was an expert in intensive care, but I had worked for a few weeks in an intensive care unit in Leeds, Jimmy's in Leeds, um, back in the, the 90s. And at the end, I mean, the African people are so generous and gracious. And at the end of these four or five lectures on intensive care, the spokesman for the class, uh, a male student, stood up and started to give a speech praising my virtues and all the rest of it. And I immediately cut him short and he sat down immediately hurt. And I thought, oh no, that was, that was the wrong thing to do. That was a cultural faux pas. But the other bit of me was thinking it was the wrong thing to do because I actually quite liked what he was saying. <laughs> it's that kind of st stop it, stop it, just yeah, a wee bit more. And he wasn't seeking to flatter me actually. He was just being generous the way the, the, the people in Kenya are. But beware the flatterer. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now Jesus is not denying his divinity, but he wants to confront this man with the reality of God's goodness. He wants to confront this man with the reality of God's goodness in order to expose his moral shallowness and his lack of insight. And that is why, as William Hendrickson says, Jesus confronts him with the absolute standard of goodness, which is the perfect law of the perfect God. You know the commandments, verse 20. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Is it significant that Jesus leaves out the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. Possibly. Perhaps maybe later on when the ruler would look back on his conversation with Jesus and reflected on what Jesus had said. Maybe that fact would hit him. Now here's, here's a thing. Paul writes in Romans 3 verse 20 that it is through the law we become conscious of sin. It is through the law of God that we become conscious of sin. But this man replies, verse 21, no conviction of sin. He says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Psalm 36 verse 2 says, in their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. And in the context of Psalm 36, that's speaking about the wicked. In their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. J.C. Ryle says, an answer more full of darkness and self-ignorance it is impossible to conceive. 
He who made it could have known nothing rightly either about himself or God or God's law. Yes, it is through the law we become conscious of sin, but only if we have grasped the depth of its demands. Think of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, don't kill. Well, don't hate. Don't be angry in a bad way. It is through the law we become conscious of sin, but only if we have grasped the depth of its demands, the utter holiness of the God who speaks it, and the deceitfulness of the human heart, which is beyond cure. Jeremiah 17.9 It is only when we realize the truth of the first half of Romans 3 verse 20, it is only then, actually, when we, do, when we realize the depths of demands of God's law, the perfect purity of God himself and the deceitfulness of our own heart, it is only then we will realize the truth of the first half of Romans 3.20, which says, no one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. No one will be justified in God's eyes by keeping the law. And therefore, we need a righteousness apart from the law to bring us to eternal life, don't we? If no one will be declared righteous or justified in God's eyes by observing the law or doing the works of the law, we need a righteousness apart from the law if we are to know eternal life. Now, in Friday, uh, in Friday, the, so I think it's okay to mention your name, Callum. Callum got a school report. Now, I'm not going to embarrass him by reading out what was on the report. But what struck me was one of the comments the teacher had put at one of the subjects. Now, it's clear it's one of these standard cut and paste, copy and paste comments. You'll know that when I read it out, because it doesn't say him or her. It says there, you know, kind of generic language. I'm not having a go at teachers. I'm just saying that's what it is. <laughs> so it gives the report, okay? You can ask Callum whether it was good, bad, indifferent, excellent. And then at the bottom, it said this, the next steps are, I wonder if the teachers here can fill out the next, but the next steps are, challenge their own high standards to produce perfect work where possible. Challenge their own high standards to produce perfect work where possible. And I'm thinking, wow, is that possible? Perfect work? In craft, design and technology? The trouble is when it comes to our morality or anything else we humans try to do to inherit eternal life, a perfect work is not possible. It's not just a matter of trying to build a ladder to reach the sun. It's the fact that the ladder is shot through with woodworm. And the irony is in this story, the irony is that the righteousness from God, apart from the law, that we all need is standing right in front of this ruler. But the ruler cannot grasp it because his hands are full of his own self-righteousness. He has been used to paying his way all his life and he thinks he can pay his way into the kingdom of God. Whether with the currency of money or the currency of morality. He thinks he can be his own saviour and lord effectively. And Tim Keller has rightly said, now he's commenting, this is in the prodigal God when he's holding up the two sons, you know, the son who went away, the son that stayed at home and worked. Tim Keller has said this, there are two ways to be your own saviour and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. 
And one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord, to be God in life. One is by breaking all the moral laws, and one is by keeping them. But the thing is, the theme song for both ways, the marching song for both ways is the same. It is, I did it my way. I did it my way. That's the theme song of hell. I've maybe said that before. I don't know what your picture of hell is. There are vivid pictures in Scripture, but one of the pictures I have of hell, and hell will be much worse than anything any of us can imagine, is that that song is blasting out of speakers at loud volume, distorted through speakers 24 hours a day, and everyone is forced to sing it. I did it my way. When I was in Glasgow, the local crematorium, uh, I remember coming in just at the end of the service that was before me coming to an end and that song, that dreary song was playing. And the member of staff, the, one of the workers at the crematorium just said, I hate that song. I hate that song. Well, Mark tells us in his account that Jesus looked at the young man and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. So what Jesus says next, he says in love. This may be the lethal commandment. That's what Dale Ralph Davis calls it, the lethal command. It may be a lethal commandment, but it is also a loving commandment in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, all these I have kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. For as Dale Ralph Davis has said, his problem was not that he had great possessions, but that they had him. His problem was not that he had great possessions, but they had him. And you see, Jesus has put his finger on the idolatry behind his morality. What about the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. You see, the self-sufficiency that so often goes hand in hand with money and wealth had infected his soul. Riches, money, possessions were his true God, his true treasure, the true center of his life. It was these that gave him meaning and purpose in life. It was these that were the foundation and framework of his life. And all his moral living was hanging on this framework like a beautiful robe covering a filthy body. But both the robe of his morality and the, the, the materialistic idolatry, both of them gave off the same stink of self-sufficiency. So, why didn't Jesus say, repent and believe in me and you will have eternal life? You will enter the kingdom of God. Well, is that not exactly what Jesus is saying to him? Turn, repent from worshipping the false god of money and things and put your trust in me. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Trust me for this life and the life to come. Stop trusting in your earthly treasure, which is so uncertain and cannot save you or give you eternal life. Put your trust in me and you will have treasure in heaven. 
become like a little child. Because I tell you truly, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. As I was saying earlier, a little child is completely dependent on others for everything. A little child will hold out empty hands to receive what it is you want to give them. The rich man needs to let go of his riches, to let go of his self-sufficiency and his self-righteousness. He needs to let go to take a hold of Christ who alone has the righteousness we need to justify us before God. Because Christ is the end of the law, the culmination of the law, so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans 10 verse 4. Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law, the fulfillment of the law, the completion of the law, so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes in him, not who tries to do the works of the law. The thing is, you and I will only let go of the idols in our hands if we see in Christ something of infinite worth and glory, a treasure far exceeding all that this world has to offer. Isn't that what Paul testifies to in Philippians 3? That's what that song was based on, the one we sang just um, just earlier, wasn't it? Here's Philippians 3, whatever... Whatever were gains to me, remember Paul was a, 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 a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had kept the law. But he says, Philippians 3 verse 7, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, what does he say next? Garbage, rubbish, what does the AV say? Dung. I consider them dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which will never save me, but the righteousness that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is on the basis of faith. We will only let go of whatever we consider to be rich in our lives. And it's not always material things, money things. It can be experiences, it can be ambition, it can be work, it can be children. Whatever it is, we'll only be persuaded to let go. If we see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich yet became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich, even to eternal life. And where do we see the riches of Christ's glory and the riches of his grace most vividly displayed? It is in the poverty, isn't it? In the poverty of the cross. It is in the poverty of the cross, the poverty of the one from whom people hid their faces and despised and held in low esteem. The poverty of the one who took up our pain and bore our suffering. The poverty of the one we considered punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And yet the poverty of the one who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, who suffered and died to save us from our moth-eaten morality and idolatry. The punishment that brought us peace, brought us peace, was on him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are made rich. By his wounds we are made rich, rich in salvation. So come to him. Come to him with empty hands. Bow before him, saying, as we'll sing in a moment or two, nothing, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And not because Jesus is our moral superior, but because he is our mighty saviour and rich in salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your mercy and grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. Father, we thank you that he died for our sins. We thank you that he was bruised for us in our place. We thank you, Father, that he was pierced for our transgressions. O oh Lord Jesus, you hold out to us the riches of eternal life, which begins here and now, as well as in the world to come. Father, open our eyes to see the, the foolishness of holding on to things which are in effect garbage, rubbish, dung. Oh, help us by faith to grasp the surpassing worth of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.